You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. We're in the second week of a multi-part series called Love Your Neighborhood in the Book of Acts. We're discovering that what Luke says to Theophilus, that the things that Jesus did, Luke recorded in the Gospel of Luke, are continuing, not only in Luke's day, but in our day as well. Everything that Jesus did and taught, he continues to do and teach in our very own neighborhoods, even today. Today, as we come to a text, chapter 4 in the book of Acts, I was reminded of a little sketch by the Maine humorists, Bert and I. That's Maine as in New England. And it goes like this. Uh, Eben Roby went down to the Tremont Temple in Boston to hear Norman Thomas speak. When he came back, he was out preaching socialism across the back fence to Enoch Turner. You know, Enoch, Eben was saying, under socialism, everybody shares everything. That's so. Oh, yeah? You mean to tell me, Eben, that if you had two farms and I had none, you'd give me one of them? Uh, yeah, under socialism, I'd give you one of them. And if you had two hay rigs, under socialism, if I had two hay rigs and you had none, I'd give you one of them. Well, Eben, suppose if you had two hogs... Dern you, Enoch, you know I got two hogs. (laughs) Well, although many people have feared it, I think that our text has very little to say about socialism, and yet it has an awful lot to say about money. It's oftentimes said that Jesus spoke more about money than he did about heaven and hell, and yet you and I are so uncomfortable with that subject. Yet the truth of the fact is that there are few forces, if any, in our neighborhoods that are more definitional than money. Drive down any street in Seattle and the presence or the absence of money cannot be missed. And so we ought not to be surprised that as Jesus continues to do and to teach that which he did in the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, that this community would have a transformational experience in their relationship to wealth. Jesus has set up the story for us in Acts 1.8 when he says, you shall receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then beyond. And so now we see the followers of Jesus, they have received power and they are in fact witnesses here in the neighborhoods of Jerusalem. We're skipping over a couple of stories. There are uh, two other uh, incidents that give witness to the presence of Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The first uh, is kind of a cultural witness. Pentecost, as people are hearing different languages spoken. The second is a kind of a a, a physical, or if you will, a medical witness. That is, a man, lame from birth, begins to walk as Peter and John uh, are used as instruments of healing in his life. But this third This third witness that we come to now is a witness that encompasses more than 5,000 people and it it, it is a witness against the power of our own day, against money itself. It's an economic witness. 
So let's open up to Acts chapter 4 and look at verses 32 through 37. In fact, if you're able, would you stand with me and let's read this aloud. It's on page 888 of the Pew Bible. Our text is Acts 4, verses 32 through 37. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. We're reading God's holy word. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one claimed private ownership of any possessions. But everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. There were these two guys, Barnabas and Ananias. One of them changed the life of a neighborhood, and the other lost his life under the influence of a neighborhood. The difference between the two men has to do with what happened at the feet of the apostles. Hi, John Mark here. You uh, may not recognize the name. In fact, if you know anything about me, it's that my name is preeminently unrecognizable. Try to take note of it, John Mark. My name is John, but uh, so many famous Johns. There's John the Baptist, and there's John the Beloved Apostle, and I'm neither of those, and in fact, I'm not an apostle at all. And to remove some of the confusion, then my friends gave me another name, Mark. Seemed like a good idea until I learned that the Latin name Mark is the most common name in the whole Roman Empire. So in a case like this, what you'd sometimes do is you'd go by the name of your parents, but my father's passed away, and my mother's name is Mary. You see the problem? There are at least six famous Marys running around these days. So they've started to call me John, who is also called Mark. John called Mark, for short. It's kind of my nickname. Anyways, my name's not so important. If you know something about me, you might have heard the rumor running around that I was the one who wrote the gospel called Mark. But it's really not true. Peter was the one who really wrote the gospel called Mark. I mean, he didn't write it, Peter. I was kind of his interpreter. I, I took his teachings and I wanted to preserve them. We could send them and share them around the empire. And so I was his translator or interpreter. But, 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 but even the name Peter is not so important. I came here this morning not to talk about myself or about him, but to tell you about Jesus. That's the name that matters to me, and that's the name that I commend to you. I want to talk to you about what Jesus did in my neighborhood. 
Now, you may have heard of my neighborhood because I, I lived in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a great city, very cosmopolitan, power brokers and the marginalized, the rich and the poor, people with great education, people in the sciences, people interested in music and the arts, and also every kind of social blight that you could possibly imagine. It's a real city. And I lived in a part of the city that was, I think you'd call it Tony. It was a nice a part of town. And if you've heard of my neighborhood, you've also likely heard of my house. You may not have known it was my house, but I lived in a very large, very large house um, in the neighborhood of Caiaphas, and they called his house a palace. And, and we had in my house an upper room that was huge, and this is where my mother and I did our entertaining. It could hold 120 guests if you really packed it, open out to the street and a um, a generous courtyard. You may have heard of my upper room. Because this Jesus, about whom I want to tell you, uh, would come to town, would come to the city from time to time. He and his followers lived way up north in Galilee, small place. But they would come down for the festivals. They would come down to be a part of big city life. They would come down to teach, and, and he would do some wonders in our city. And, of course, they would need a place to stay. And so uh, it was easy for us. We had plenty of room, not only in our house, but uh, you may have heard the rumor that uh, over on the uh, Mount of Olives, we had an olive yard, uh, a walled and spacious garden, and that we would let him and his followers use that space sometime to stay out there. We didn't talk a lot about who owned what so much in that day because it was not always safe to be associated with Jesus at that time. And so it was better if we didn't talk about whose houses these followers like to stay in. But I don't mind telling you, you look like a group of people that can keep a secret, right? Just, if anybody asks you, just tell them you heard it from Mark. Right? <laughs> but we were using, we were using my house as a kind of a base of operation. Now, Jesus' followers, after he was risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, would oftentimes gather in the temple. And there the apostles would teach us day in and day out. But Peter and John had just come into a little bit of trouble in the temple. They walking in, they healed a man. Well, God healed a man. And the authorities didn't like that, and they hauled him in. And so we kind of kept our heads down for a little while. We've been gathered in that upper room, and we've been praying. And they've been released. But anyways, what I want to tell you about is what happened at the feet of the apostles. I want to tell you about these two men. It's a surprising story. Ananias and Barnabas. I think maybe if you've heard the story, you've been surprised by it. Maybe you've been troubled by it. But I got a feeling you've probably been surprised by the wrong one. Well, I'll tell you more about that in a second. Let me, let me tell you about the feet of the apostles. See, the feet of the apostles was where we were bringing money. Just like Luke told you. Uh, you just read it. Uh, you read verses 32 through 34. And there you see... A community that was of one mind and one spirit, sharing together and bringing their resources to the feet of the apostle. 
Now, I think there's a huge misunderstanding about what we were actually doing. Some of you, I hear, believe that we were just selling everything and giving it away. But that's the one thing that Luke can't be talking about, see? Because Luke has just told you that there was not one among us who was needy. And if we were selling everything and just giving it away, then why, all of us would be needy. But that wasn't the case. We had everything that we need. We had enough for all. No, and that this is not the case is further confirmed in the next chapter when Peter says something to Ananias. He says, Ananias, that field that you owned was your field. And after you sold it, the proceeds, Ananias, were your proceeds to do whatever you will with them. See, that's the way we were living. We, we own property. In fact, this house. Um, my mother and I own this house. We haven't sold it nor given it away. And you can bet that Barnabas still owns his house. But this misses the whole point. See, this, this conflates two practices that are described, two different practices in verses 32 through 37 that are assumed to be one. But if you, if you can keep them separated, you're going to see not only what they are, but what happens in the middle that made them possible. And that's where Jesus comes in. The first practice I want to call retitling. And the second, returning. We see retitling here in verse 32. Now, the whole group of those who believe were of one heart and one mind, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions. But everything they owned was held in common. Now, so you see, we did own things. We had private ownership, but it's as though we retitled it all. It's as though we said, well, I own this house, but I'm going to, by faith, sign the title of this house over to the community. That we'd hold it as a community in common. See, I'll live here and I'll take care of it, but it's not mine, it's ours. That's retitling. It's ours. In common, that's the word koine, or fellowship, or communion, or participation. Because we know that together, we, we're all participating in the presence and the life of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we held all of our goods in that same way. We titled them. The other practice was returning. And if you skip over the center of this text to verses 34 to 35, then you can see what Luke has to tell you about our practice of returning. This was a, an iterative, occasional practice that was just going on all the time, but only as there was need. Uh, I like what your translation, the NIV, says, from time to time this would happen. And returning was a response to a need. Someone would find out about a need in the community. There were people who were hurting or broken or in trouble. And then this word would come to the apostles and word then would be spread. And there were some of us who were, we were wealthier. We owned homes or lands or property. About 14 to 17% of us in my neighborhood owned homes at that time. There weren't a lot of us, but if you were in that class, you were a person of means. And so what you would do is you might take some part of your property and liquidate it. You'd sell it. You'd take the proceeds from that sale or some part of those proceeds, and you would bring them to the community. You would bring them and you would lay them 
at the feet of the apostles. And they'd be distributed to those who had the need. Can you imagine what it was like to live that way? Can you imagine what your neighbors would think if they saw you participating in a community like that? If you were inviting them into a welcoming community that, of which each individual membership personally pledged themselves and all that they are to make sure that there is nobody in the community that has any kind of need whatsoever that goes unmet. Can you imagine the wealth, the social wealth of a community like that? It was nothing short of miraculous. It was inexplicable. But here's where, to help you understand the inexplicable, I want to tell you about these two men, Barnabas and Ananias. Both of them seem so similar, don't they? Both of them come to the feet of the apostles with a gift. Barnabas comes first. Uh, In the interest of full disclosure, I should tell you Barnabas is my cousin, which means he was wealthy, which means he didn't have to knock when he came in the door. He just walked right in and there he was. Actually, Barnabas at the time was called Joseph. He was a, a Levite from Cyprus. And uh, we were in this upper room and we were gathered and the apostles saw Joseph come in the room. and He had in his hands a sack of money and he brought it and he set it at the apostles' feet. And as they looked at that, They were aware that he had sold a land in order to uh, meet the needs of our community. There was celebration. You could see the smiles on the apostles' face. And And they stood up to embrace Joseph. And they said, Joseph, we give you a new name. We want to call you son of encouragement. That's what Barnabas meant to us. Son of encouragement. Son of consolation. Son of, it's the same word that was used of the Holy Spirit. Son of comfort. You are a son of the Holy Spirit. For there's no other way to explain this act of generosity than to think that Jesus Christ is present in your life, giving you the capacity to give up what you surely want for yourself. Sometime later, there was a, another person at the door, and he knocked. We didn't know him well. His name was Ananias. And just as Joseph had come through the door, so comes now Ananias with a sack of money. He approaches the apostles. He has a kind of a smile on his face. And he actually set his sack in front of Peter. And Peter is looking hard into Ananias' face. He seems to see something in his eye Something that he would describe to us later as fear. I wasn't sure what that was. Barnabas, uh, Ananias began to speak. He, he said, I have sold a piece of property, a land, and I have brought here to me all of the proceeds. I've decided just to give it all to the community. And Peter wasn't buying it. Peter looked at him and said, dear Ananias, you are lying, aren't you? Why have you chosen to do this? And in the shock of exposure, and nobody expected this, not least of all Peter, all of a sudden some kind of seizure, and Ananias drops to the floor dead, dead at the feet of the apostles. How do you explain this? 
<laughs> I'm telling you, after that, we were thinking, okay, this is the last donation we're going to get from anybody in the community <laughs> who would take the risk. And they carted him off. And you know, the same thing happens to his wife, Sapphira, a few hours later. How do you explain the difference between these two men who come both of means, both with generous intent, both giving the same thing a gift? Well, you're going to have to look below the surface. You're going to have to look beneath the level of just what Ananias said. It's true that Ananias didn't fully retitle all that he had. He kept something back. It's true Ananias, in the moment he was making people believe he was engaged in this returning, didn't actually return everything. But those were not his problem. We would all be tempted to do exactly what Ananias did. The problem is Ananias had made a fundamental choice in his heart. A fundamental choice that affected and impacted his motivation in every area of his life. And it was simply coming out in his financial world. And I would describe that word just as Peter had, fear. His motive was fear. You know, there was a lot of fear in our neighborhood. Times were tough. I don't know if you can relate to this. People were having trouble getting work. We had famines. We had shortages. We had these Romans all over the place. We had uprisings. And it was hard. It was frightening. And you never knew what was going to happen next. You never knew if you had enough for the next crisis, which could be right around the corner. See, and that's the thing about money. Money speaks to our fear. You never know if you've got enough money, because who knows what will happen next. You just feel vulnerable. I can't help but think that Ananias' neighborhood had influenced him, that he had caught some of the fear in that neighborhood, that it had become a lifestyle, that he had set his heart on the promise of money in the face of fear. I don't really know what he was thinking, but I, I, I can see that he was too afraid to join the community wholeheartedly. What happens if they don't care for me? And so he withheld some money, a little, a little nest egg for his own safety. Uh, maybe he was too afraid not to join the community. What, what happens if I get sick and all the money in the world can't bring healing? I, I'd really love to be with these Christians the way they care for one another. Maybe he had fear because we all knew he was a man of means. And in the face of such generosity, he felt obligated to come and bring an offering out of some misguided sense of duty. I never had a chance to talk to Ananias. He just died too quickly. But I would love to have sat down with Ananias and say, Ananias, if you're afraid, you don't need to bring your money. God doesn't need your money. He wants you, Ananias. He doesn't want you to give anything to him. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He wants you to come to him so that he can give you something. He wants to give you life, Ananias. I know he'd heard that message before, but something within him had rejected he was pulling away from life, and that was painfully obvious in the room at that time. Now, there's another motive to the generous life, and it's this that Joseph understood. The real surprise is not Barnabas, uh, excuse me, is not Ananias. The real surprise in the story is Joseph. It's Barnabas. It's that he could do what so many of us were doing at that time. It's that he had financial freedom, not because he was rich, but because of 
In a word, grace. If Ananias' motive was fear, clearly the motive of Barnabas was grace. Are you curious why it was that we put this money at the feet of the apostles? I mean, doesn't that seem strange to you? Because if you saw a need in the community, you wouldn't take it to the apostles. You'd probably just go take it to the person who has the need, wouldn't you? Here, here's my money. Well, why walk all the way across the neighborhood to the apostles and then impose upon them the burden of walking all the way back to wherever the need was? Just go directly. Well, that's not what we were doing. Are you curious at all about why it was that we put it at the apostles' feet? Because you'd think that we would put it in their hands, wouldn't you? I mean, it'd be nicer. They wouldn't have to bend over and pick it up later. But we're, we're reading here repeatedly that the, Luke wants you to know it was to the feet of the apostles. Why? Well, the Israelites understood the feet to be the least noble of all the body parts. It was a place of humility. And to find yourself or to fall at the feet of someone was to show respect for that person, who they are and what they represent. But there's more than that. The feet of a person, because they are a place of humility, interacting with respect, is a place where the student would come and learn from a teacher. So oftentimes we find people at the feet of Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus liberates a demoniac. And when he is found, he is sitting at the feet of Jesus, wanting to know more about his good news. Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, sits at the feet of Jesus. We all wanted to sit at the feet of Jesus. In fact, Saul, the great rabbi, when he is present at the martyrdom of the first martyr, Stephen, as he's being stoned, we read that the witnesses took their cloaks and set them at the feet of Saul in deference to his vision of life. <laughs> and Saul himself, after he has met the risen uh, Jesus Christ, would testify that he had been raised, brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, who was famous as a rabbi. And so to come and bring our offerings to the feet of the apostles made it clear that we were not actually bringing our money to the apostles. We were coming as learners to bring our wealth to the witness of the apostles. And here you see the center of this generosity in verse 33. Luke says, with great power, the apostles gave their testimony, that's the word for witness, to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. We were coming to hear the good news of Jesus. And it was that good news and only that good news that gave us the capacity to be set free from money. Now, the promise of money that says, in me you'll find life, was put to the lie in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is true life, who can overcome sin and death and the darkest powers of hell itself. And when they told us every day about the risen Jesus Christ, we knew now we didn't need our money anymore. For we were no longer vulnerable. There was no longer anything in this world that could put us to fear. And that we were free to take whatever we are and to offer all that we are to the people around us. Luke told you that the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus came with power. And I was there. He wasn't talking about miracles, that kind of power. He wasn't talking about eloquence, as though they could give a really good speech. He was talking about the power of grace in a person's life. 
See, there are really two economies in my neighborhood. One economy is the economy of fear. And it, fear, the economy of fear says, if you do this, then you will be secure. But the economy of grace says, because I have done this, you are secure. Can you imagine what it meant to us to know that our creator, the one who holds together all things, loves us so much, he would come and die for each and every one of us? Could money love me more than that? Can you imagine what it meant for us to know that a person in the, his greatest point of vulnerability, in the grave itself, could experience resurrection life? Who could feel more secure? It's knowing these two things that we are loved, that we are secure in God's grace that gave us the power to live differently, the power to live with absolute freedom. There's a proverb, and I actually heard someone quote this as they were pulling out Ananias and Sapphira for burial. It's Proverb 11.28. It says, Those who trust in their riches will wither, but the righteous will flourish like green leaves. You know, that's true. But there's nobody who's righteous but one. Jesus Christ alone is the one who's righteous. And I'm here to tell you, there is no difference between the righteousness of Barnabas and the righteousness of Ananias. Both men fall as short as I do before a righteous God. But I'm also here to tell you that the witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we received every moment, every day from these apostles who had seen him alive again, reminded this, that his righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, has become ours. And therefore, you and I have all the life that we need. And we could set aside everything else that promises us anything similar. Financial freedom? You just have to make the decision that Barnabas made. The decision that Ananias chose not to make. Which is to live within an economy of grace. To look to Jesus Christ and know who you are. To stop negotiating your relationship with money. You know, we didn't even think about money anymore. We were negotiating our relationship with God. And discovering who we were in his love. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. These apostles brought good news. As they told about their tangible experience of you risen from the dead. As they reduced that witness to writing as we have it before us in our Bibles today. As you sent people in our lives to tell us and to show us about grace. It's good news. It sets us free. It's what we need. And now you commission us likewise to go in that freedom. To give witness to your presence in our midst. To your good news and to the grace that is not only for us but that belongs to our neighborhoods and to your creation as a whole. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette.
To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.